Oh Lord, we are we are so grateful to be together this morning. We are so grateful that you have given us your word and you have given us your Holy Spirit that will lead and guide and convict and show yourself real to us. Lord, I pray that you would quiet our hearts. We are busy women and we have um, recognized our dependence upon you. We are in great need of you, Lord. Some come this morning maybe weary and faint-hearted. Some may become rejoicing in the goodness of your hand. Maybe some are discouraged. Lord, we all come needing you to speak to us. I thank you for your strength. I thank you for the ways that you have shown yourself real in the past and for the grace that we see in one another's lives that encourage us to love you more and to pursue you more. Lord, I thank you that though we were sinners lost in our sin, lost in darkness, you sent Jesus to die in our place, to take the wrath of the Father. And now, Lord, we are adopted. And not only are we adopted, but we are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. And, Lord, we are to live victoriously because of the cross. So, Lord, we look forward to what you're going to teach us this morning. And by your Holy Spirit's leading, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you. Let's begin as we do each week and turn over our binders. We're going to look again this morning at our Wellspring purpose as we do each week. Our purpose is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the Word of God as they live, so that they live out gospel-transformed life, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. And remember, we have three disciplines under our Wellspring purpose. And as we review these disciplines, it's um, really important that we remind ourselves that we never graduate, do we? We never graduate from discipline one and move on to the next. We never get a diploma because we never master discipline one. It's a lifelong process. We are in the process of sanctification, becoming more like Christ. Well, let's look at discipline one again, the heart. She prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. Notice the adjective right before describing the way that we're to shepherd our hearts with the word of God. She is prayerful. She prayerfully shepherds her heart. The beginning of our homework each week usually begins with a reminder to pray, right? We ask God to increase our desire for him and to change us to be more like Christ. Or we're instructed to take a few minutes to quiet our hearts and pray, thanking God for his word and asking God to reveal himself more to us. We ask him to open his word, open our eyes to see wondrous things in his law. Well, prayer prepares our hearts, and it rightly gives God due honor. We are in great need of him, of our Savior, and through prayer we acknowledge that we are dependent upon him. That is a great benefit, and there is great benefit in praying God's words, his very words, back to him. He delights in answering those prayers. Maybe you take some time before you begin your quiet time and um, go through your Wellspring hymn book. Maybe you read those words, or maybe you sing those words, and that's a great way to start, too. Well, heart shepherding is an ongoing discipline. And notice that word, discipline. It takes discipline to have a mind that is set and focused on God and his word throughout the day. We need to read our Bible prayerfully and then extend what we've read and throughout the rest of our day so that we're thinking biblically in the way that we live, so that we live those gospel-transformed lives we talk about. 
let's think about being at the beach and you've set up your umbrella and you've got your blanket out, your food and drinks are in the cooler and your family spot is set for the day. You're excited to spend time with your family at the beach on this vacation and you run into the water and you're having a great time and you're laughing and playing in the ocean. But before long, you realize that your family spot is way over there and you all have drifted over here, right? You know how that happens. It's important to keep our eyes on that spot so we don't lose track. Well, in the same way, that's what heart shepherding is. It takes discipline because without being careful to keep our eyes on Jesus throughout the day, paying attention to our hearts, without shepherding our hearts toward Jesus with the word of God, we will drift. We will drift far from him. We're vulnerable to all the mixed condition weaknesses described in our gospel implications in the man creation um, chart that we've gotten a few weeks ago. We are all in danger of drifting. We're vulnerable, it says, to being deceived. Um, of Here we are. Of being deceived, of loving the world, of leaving our first love, Jesus, being entangled by sin, temptation to sin, being led away from devotion to Christ. So we want to be careful. We want to be intentional. The fact is the world and I, that you and I live in are constantly, constantly pulling us away from Christ. We don't have to work at making our focus drift away from the gospel. It just naturally happens, doesn't it? We have to battle for that. As long as we are in these earthly bodies, we have to work at keeping our focus on the gospel. And that takes discipline. We spend ourselves, remember, to enter salvation's rest. We search ourselves with the word of God. God's word is living and it's active and it allows me to see my heart rightly. And remember also from our last lesson that we strip ourselves before the God of the word. Nothing is hidden from his sight. He knows everything about me. For those who have been chosen by God, there's no fear of being crushed. I love that we were reminded that God crushed his only son on my behalf, on our behalf, paying for every sin for us. In Christ, for the believer, God has only love, compassion, and deepest affection for us. And this love is without any admixture of love whatsoever. We diligently want to pursue this Christ through his word. Well, that leads us into discipline to the home. She ministers to those in her household with her heart for God and the gospel. Whether you have a household full of people or you live by yourself, you are responsible for making sure you have a heart for God and the gospel in your home. There ought to be an aroma of Christ in your home, noticed by those who enter there. She ministers. Minister means to attend to, to take care of the needs, to look after, to help and assist. And Discipline 2 tells us that this ministering to those in her household is rooted in, motivated by her own heart for God and the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.14 says, For Christ's love compels us. To be compelled is to be highly motivated. We're to be motivated by Christ's love for us. And where do we learn of his love? Where do we see his love demonstrated for us? It's in the gospel, right? Proverbs 31.27 says she looks well to the ways of her household. Proverbs 31 is a great description of character which we all strive for, married or unmarried. We seek to be women who fear the Lord above all else. There are many godly traits that we strive to emulate, and we find this passage helpful in that pursuit. Well, I'm looking forward to moving from um, moving into Discipline 2 in the next couple of weeks. We're going to focus on the home for a while. 
um, I found this time always every year to be both challenging and encouraging. I'm humbled and I'm also emboldened as I recall again what my role is in my home. And discipline three, with a heart for for God and the gospel and fulfilling her ministry within her household, she steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. Every woman who is focused on consistent heart shepherding will be overflowing with the God of the word. That woman has a valuable and irreplaceable role in the body of Christ for the mission of the gospel of Christ. The woman who has been feasting on God and his word has something to say to others. She offers encouragement that she's helpful and she's useful for the church and for the gospel. Well, we all want to be women who shepherd our heart toward Christ. I know we do. And that takes intentionality. It takes planning. We are all counting on each other to be that kind of woman. We are part of the body. We have a role to play. We'll be equipped to deal with daily circumstances according to God's word. Then we'll develop the discipline of rehearsing the gospel to ourselves by renewing our mind and by reminding ourselves and others what Christ has accomplished um, by God in the gospel of Christ. That is why we soak ourselves, we immerse ourselves, we marinate in, we saturate, we drench ourselves in the gospel every day, all the time. We will still experience stresses and temptations, of course, and emotions and hard things in our day, but those experiences won't undo us, and they won't make us drift off course, because we are able to think rightly about our circumstances, and we think rightly about God. We're able to shepherd our hearts toward Christ. We're able to live gospel-transformed lives that strengthen our households and the church, and make much of our Savior. Well, today you received an article, The Shelf Life, on Preaching the Gospel to Yourself, and we're going to let you read that on your own. But it has some helpful reminders um, about the relationship between the gospel and the word. And it points out how important it is to preach the gospel to yourself, and that by meaning that, we, um, by remembering the gospel, we're saying um, that we're just recalling that to mind and using it and shepherding our hearts. That the gospel should not be separated from the word of God. The gospel needs to stay anchored in its scriptural context. And we need to recognize that the gospel is the crown jewel of the word. We aren't going to understand and apply God's word rightly if we don't understand the centrality of the gospel. On the other hand, we need to be careful to guard against focusing on the gospel, but neglecting the whole of God's word. So we hope you find that article helpful as you read that later. Well, like I said, we focused um, on the Wellspring Discipline thus far in our year on Discipline 1, the heart. And a couple more weeks we're going to be here, and then we're going to move on to Discipline 2, <clears throat> the home. We, we move from learning about the condition of our heart, right, how to direct our hearts, what it needs most to be in full contact with the Word of God as we engage with the God of His Word. And we move into how this caring for our hearts, this gospel transforming in our hearts, is now lived out in our homes. It's kind of the rubber meets the road kind of study. The home is a training ground to put into practice what God has accomplished in our hearts. We have opportunities all throughout our day, don't we? To trust him, to stand on his promises, to display and encourage others in our home and those that God brings to us, to know the God we love. And there's opportunity for you and I to be recipients of those who live in our home or who come into our home to encourage and direct our hearts toward the gospel and toward Christ again, to remind us of his love for us. And whether we have looked at our mixed condition or we've had a biblical survey of the heart or our study of salvation's rest, we've always come back to discipline one 
and how badly we need to cultivate a lifelong discipline of prayerfully shepherding our hearts. So today's lesson, before we begin, we're going to have a pop quiz. I hope you're ready. At the top of your outline, I just want you to jot down a few words that come to mind when you think, shepherding my heart. What does that mean? And I'm just going to give you a couple minutes to do that. And um, go ahead. What does shepherding my heart mean? You guys are really studious. Good. Can I hear a few things maybe that you wrote down? Just shout them out. Um, intentionally positioning my heart to meet with God in His Word. Very good. Great. I love those words. Intentionally positioning, positioning myself. Anybody else? Are we still writing? This is great. Well, if you said spending time in God's word, you're right. And if you said spending time in prayer, that is an element of it as well. If you said keeping a journal, maybe, of things that the Lord reveals to you, that is a great practice. And if you said renewing my mind, you're correct. And if you said preaching the gospel to myself, absolutely. And if you said engaging with the Lord, it is a must to shepherding our hearts. If that's where we stopped, though, and I'm I'm sure that you all wrote down these as well, if we come away from our quiet time or time with the Lord or devotions, whatever you might call it, and you close up your Bible and your journal and you put them on the shelf and you leave them there until tomorrow, same place, same time, you've missed the whole of shepherding our hearts. Shepherding is more. It's so much more than this. It's engaging with the God of the Word, to be sure, and it certainly is preaching the gospel and renewing my mind. And it's about worshiping the Lord. But if it ends there, we're missing what God has intended for his beloved ones. And we don't want to miss anything God has for us, do we? Maybe you said, shepherding my heart is not only about meeting with my Savior each day, bringing my heart near his word, but it's a continual and constant caring for, guarding, and directing my heart. You are most definitely correct. If you said, dealing with my sin in my heart throughout the day and being mindful and thankful for God and his provisions and care for me, you're doing well and your understanding of what it means to shepherd your heart. Shepherding our heart involves confession of sin and cultivating a right view of God. It's relinquishing my perceived rights. It's forgiving. It's trusting God with his sovereign plan and will for my life. It's informing my mind when it doesn't want to hear what biblical truths when my heart is weak. And the list goes on. And so this week we're going to look a little more into what shepherding is. And we're going to dig a little deeper in our discovery. We've talked a lot about the heart. But why do we say shepherd our heart? What does that mean? Well, shepherding in my heart throughout the day is the overflow of discipline one and discipline two and discipline three, right? Well, how is it meant to carry over into the rest of my day until I meet with him again? The gospel's transforming work in my heart must change the way I think and act and treat others in my life. The gospel realities are exactly what I need when I sin. If what I've read is not affecting my life, 
beyond my quiet time, I must examine why is this true or why is it not true. If I say I've shepherded my heart, I've been in the word today, but I'm in kind with my words and actions throughout the rest of the day or complain constantly, there's a disconnect somewhere. We're not talking about perfection, are we? But we are sinners saved by God's grace. But we want to be women who live gospel-transformed lives. Our aim is to get God in all of life. And in that aim, the pursuit, others are going to be watching. What a privilege it would be that in your pursuit of Christ, because of your love for him, being compelled by his love, others might see a life that's been changed, been transformed by the good news of the gospel. So we must be diligent to make the connection between time in the word and the rest of my day. I talked to a friend a few years ago about a relationship struggle she was having, and I asked, how can you apply the gospel in this situation? What difference does the cross make? She wasn't sure, and as I was asking the question, I was thinking, do I really understand? I think it should, but I'm not sure how in this situation to apply it. Well, I think that we would agree that the truth of the gospel ought to mean something more to us than they do, but perhaps we don't know yet how to make those connections. And since that time, I've sought to connect the dots. So here's an analogy. Let's say that you're diagnosed with heart disease. The doctor's prescribed a prescription, and you are faithful to take that pill every day without fail. You wouldn't think about missing that medication, even for a day. Your health depends on that pill. However, after taking your daily pill to help with heart disease, would you then consider continuing to eat the the foods that the doctor has said would promote heart disease? You're not guarding the the health of your heart if you continue to eat foods that are detrimental to your health. If you want to guard your heart against heart disease, you'll watch carefully what you eat. In the same way, as I am in the Word of God, when I'm meeting with the Lord, that's so important, and I do not want to minimize that in the slightest. It's what I need for my spiritual health. But what I do with with my heart for the rest of the day is also very important. See, I can take my pill, I can meet with God, and I can forget about him the rest of the day. I can feed my heart junk all day by, listen, by what I listen to, what I read, or what I think on that might be contrary to God's will for me. Or I can get careless and confident. So now I think I can trust myself. So maybe I just take a half a pill. Or I become inconsistent in my time with the Lord because I think my heart's doing okay. So we want to remember here that though the reading plan is a tool to help us, it's not in itself the shepherding of my heart. One should not think, be able to think that they're shepherding their heart if they're not dealing with their sin throughout the day or their thoughts of God are not accurate. So have you ever tended sheep? I'm guessing nobody would consider themselves an experienced shepherd of sheep or another animal of some kind, but we would all know that shepherds don't just care for their sheep in the morning, right? Shepherds need to tend them throughout the day. Sheep need constant care. Sheep get lost, they fall down, they roll over, and they can't get back up. And it can be very helpful to try to come up with other ways to say what we mean by shepherding. It's certainly not helpful to use it if we don't know what it means, right? We don't want it to become jargon. We don't want it, this to be a word we use at Grace Bible, but not really understand what it's meaning or um, lose its meaning. We might say living out a gospel-transformed life. We might say guarding our heart. You might ask What are you doing with your heart? How is your heart? Pay attention when that circumstance comes. What's your heart doing? And here are some synonyms to shepherding. To coach or lead, mentor, 
And we can find a biblical definition <coughs> in the Strong's Concordance. And this is what it says. To feed, to tend a flock, to keep sheep, to rule and govern, to furnish pasture for food, to nourish, to cherish one's body, to serve the body. And here's the one that comes closest to discipline one. To supply what is required for the soul. To supply what is required for the soul's need. But the most helpful way to understand what a shepherd means is to look at the word of God, right? When we do that, we find out just very how descriptive it is. Well, if you could go to the concordance, uh, and there's an uh, online commentary called Blue Letter Bible, or Blue, um, it's really helpful. So if you don't know about that, ask somebody. Um, it's really easy to use. <coughs> and you type in shepherd, you'll find descriptions of what a shepherd is, either literally or figuratively speaking, um, of a person's role over another person's. So here are some characteristics of, ah, I went flying, sorry. <laughs> Of a good shepherd from the word. It says they are they guard, they tend, they do it voluntarily, they do it with eagerness, they rule, they gather and they feed, they are faithful. Good shepherds, they train to walk in and keep and observe God's word. Good shepherds sacrifice for and protect and they dispel fear. And that's what we're aiming for when we shepherd our hearts, to faithfully and eagerly guard, lead, feed, and to train our hearts to obey God's word, to dispel fear from our hearts by drawing near to God, to know God's character and love for us. As you did your lesson this week and you looked at Psalm 103, I hope you were encouraged by all of the benefits and character of our Savior. The word of God shows us that God is um, who God is and strengthens our Love for him. Jesus is the good shepherd, and we are his sheep. Psalm 103 tells us that God is our redeemer, who has redeemed us. You see, slaves were put up for sale. An owner would come and purchase his slave, and now this slave would belong to the owner, and he would serve the owner exclusively for the rest of his life. You and I were once slaves to righteousness. We belong to another But Christ came to redeem us. He bought us with his precious blood, the payment for our sins. We are now slaves, slaves of his, slaves of righteousness. We have a new master. Psalm 103 continues and tells us that this master alone satisfies us with good things and does not treat us as our sins deserve. His steadfast love is from everlasting to everlasting. That greatly encourages my heart. We can thank God for his love for us and for his word. And so now we're going to go back and look again at our good shepherds and bad shepherds contrast. Now listen to what the word says about bad shepherds. They have no understanding. They haven't sought the Lord. They haven't prospered. Their flocks scatter. Their fields are ruined and trampled down. They destroy the sheep. They don't tend to the sheep. They lead the sheep astray, in fact. And this is an interesting one. They make the sheep forget their resting place. Remember our lesson, Salvation's Rest? When we shepherd our hearts to to be diligent to enter Salvation's Rest, we're reminding of our heart of its resting place, right? Well, bad shepherds sleep when they should be keeping watch. They have no pity for the sheep. They're worthless. They leave the flock. They're foolish. They don't care about the perishing. They don't seek the scattered, they don't heal the broken, and they actually devour the sheep. 
Those with no shepherd are described as afflicted, distressed, or discouraged. It really does a sheep no good to have a bad shepherd or to be unshepherded. There's no protection from affliction or distress or being discouraged. There's no sustenance or healing for brokenness. That's a very dangerous place for a sheep, and it's a very dangerous place for our hearts, too. Do you see the connection there? Jesus is our chief shepherd, and he's the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. Well, Psalm 23 is a familiar passage to us. How about we turn there? Psalm 23. (laughs) The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And so our part in shepherding is to bring our heart to the good shepherd, Jesus, so that we might receive the shepherding care he has for us. We get a picture of our heart here, like the sheep. We've looked at good and bad shepherds, and now here's a few about sheep. They're the dumbest of animals. They're helpless and timid. They require constant attention and meticulous care. They'll go the wrong way, unaware of dangers that lay ahead. They've nibbled themselves right off the mountainside because they're not paying attention. They'll eat and drink things that are disastrous to them. They easily fall prey. They can become literally cast down, and when they get turned over, they can't flip back over, and so they panic, and they end up dying there. So they need to have a shepherd there to put them right back up. You and I, like sheep, are in need of a shepherd every day, all day. I'm so thankful that God's made a way and that he is our good shepherd. Now we want to look at a couple scenarios, the day-to-day. So you've risen before the kids and you've had your quiet time and you've met with the Lord. You're encouraged and you're strengthened by his word through your time of worshiping the king. Perhaps you've been convicted by the Holy Spirit and you've confessed and repented and you're eager to to see change in your attitude today. And that is so good. Your kids wake up and you greet them and you snuggle in your comfy chair. And these are precious moments. And you have a high expectation expectation that today is going to be a good day. You begin making breakfast and all is bright. And then you hear an uh-oh. And you turn to see the gallon of milk spilled all over the counter. And you've asked her many times to let you help pour that milk. The baby's crying now and your husband comes down and wants to know if his shirt is ironed for the day. How easy at that moment to forget. So quickly, you have forgotten the sweet time you've had with the Lord. Just minutes before you fly off the handle, you let everyone know you are angry by your words. Perhaps perhaps you um, sense the Holy Spirit calling back to your mind. Your first chapter, uh, James 1, 19 and 20. Know this, my beloved brethren. Let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. That high expectation of not giving into the sin of anger quickly fades. Already you feel defeated in your day. You have forgotten the gospel at that moment. You seek forgiveness of your husband and your daughter, and you move on. 
You confess your sin to the Lord, but you still have that nagging guilt. Why do I always? When will I respond in obedience over my tongue? When will I think more biblically before speaking? We're not going to stop battling this fleshly response, are we? As soon as I can, I render the word. And I know sometimes that can be a lot later in your day as you're caring for little ones or maybe you're away from home that day. But there is some truth of the gospel that you can remind yourself of at that very moment. We soak ourselves, right, in the gospel for moments like this throughout our day. We want to know gospel realities well so that we can battle hard and remind our hearts of God's amazing love toward his beloved children. What we can do is train our hearts and our minds to quickly recall those truths so that we don't set the mood for our day, right? We don't want that to carry over. Remember our pill for heart disease? We've taken our daily pill, but we don't want to eat junk all the rest of the day. We train ourselves to stop and turn in a different direction in our thinking. I've literally cried, called out, stop, and just taken myself by the ear and gone. We've got to get back to the word. We repent of our sin, and we turn from that sin, turning our back on it. That's what repentance is. We rejoice again in our Savior, in his great love for us. You have brought your heart near to God through his word, and now the shepherding continues, right? I bring this wayward heart of mine back to God through his word and remember what he's done. And I transform my mind. I change my thinking. As those who have been chosen by God, we've been given the power to respond biblically because of the cross. Do not give in to defeat. Remind yourself, if I confess my sin, he is faithful and just to forgive my sins and to purify me from all unrighteousness. I want to give you an example of a dear sister in Christ who shared with me how she preaches the gospel to herself when she has sinned. And um, I think it's just a good practical. We talk about it a lot. And here is a great example. I ask her to share with me, what is it that you do? So let's look at James 1, 19 and 20. And um, I actually just read that too in our lesson. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. So she says, I've reacted in anger. I turn to James because I know he talks about anger here. And I begin to pray through this passage. She uses God's words back to him. There are other passages, of course, that you could use. So this is her prayer. (laughs) Lord, I have not lived and put Christ's righteousness on display this morning. I have loved myself more than I have loved you. I have loved clean floors more than I have loved your righteousness. I know you have sent Christ to suffer my sin. You have bled and you have died for me. Your righteousness is precious, and I have trampled upon it in this moment of anger. I am thankful for your pain, the penalty for my sin. I am now clothed in your righteousness. You have loved me. I have no power to walk without anger apart from you. Lord, help me to be eager to go to those whom I have sinned against and eager to continue to battle my sin. Wow, if you and I could respond like that, we can train ourselves to think that way, I think we would sin less. As those words, they just have rung in my ears. Your righteousness is precious, and I have trampled upon them in this moment of fill in the blank. Might we think before we speak? Do you see the elements of confession and sin and rehearsing the gospel realities? It's so important. So here's another scenario for us. <coughs> You've had a really busy week, and you are exhausted. You fall into bed each night knowing that tomorrow is going to be another full day. 
Your heart is weak. Finally, you have a day at home, and you're so looking forward to some downtime, not getting in the car to go anywhere. You have expectations for your day. Your husband is working today, and he's had a busier week than you. You're ready to take a long-needed rest. He calls, and he's forgotten something, and he can't leave. He's called his helpmate. You, however, are annoyed. You're angry that your plans and expectations of the day have exploded. Selfishness rears its ugly head. Pride says you have a right to a day of rest. All kinds of things run through your mind, and none of them are good. I'm entitled to this. I deserve this day. I deserve a nap. What we see in the example is the leaves of the tree. It's the visible. But what we don't see is the root of the tree or the root of the sin of anger. You have to be diligent to dig deep into the roots to find where the sin has begun. Sin is never in isolation. Remember a few weeks ago we said that sin always has a companion? The sin I first recognize is just the tip of the iceberg. There's so much more that lies below the surface. What's going on in the heart when I'm disrespectful or talk unkindly to another? Well, there's lack of love. We haven't loved the other well if I'm impatient. We're saying, I want what I want right now, and you're not serving me very well in that. There is love of my own pleasure. I'm not following God's command to, um, in humility, count myself, count others more significant than myself. I'm not only to look at my own my interests, but also to the interests of others. At the root is pride. I deserve better than this. This circumstance, Lord, I don't believe is the best for me. I don't trust you in that. I don't like your plan for my day. Such arrogance and such self-centeredness. This is actually all-out rebellion against God. I'm saying that I would do a better job at controlling my little universe than he would. Rebellion is at the heart of sin. Do you see how digging to cover the root is so helpful. Smed preached, and I listened to this week a couple of times, um, a helpful sermon on preaching the gospel to yourself, and it's online, August 22, 2010. And I really would encourage you to listen to that this week, maybe as you're folding laundry or doing dishes or driving in the car, however, um, but that's really good. He talks about how does God feel about my sin? He asks three questions. How does God feel about my sin? What did God do about my sin? And what are the benefits of that? <clears throat> Well, he says we don't really see our sin the way it is. We, all, we, we very often take our sin too lightly. And then um, gave a ton of scripture behind those. And then what did God do about my sin? He reminds us that sin is a big deal. But he reminds us, too, that what God did about my sin is an even bigger deal. And I have to know gospel realities or I will despair. And the Christian life is not meant to be lived in despair. We walk in newness of life. And then what are the results? And he gives, again, a ton of scripture. We're saved from the wrath of God. We're made alive with Christ. We are new creatures. We were far off. We've been brought near. We've been adopted. And not only are we adopted, but we are co-heirs with Christ. You will be encouraged about God's love for you as you listen to that whole sermon. It was really powerful this week. Well, here's another way we could respond in those scenarios. And there are a bajillion circumstances, right, that come to our lives, and they all look different in our lives. But maybe we could decide how to handle temptations before it comes. Proverbs 22.3 says, The prudent sees evil, and he hides himself. So with a little um, forethought, we can um, 
learn to respond before. Temptation is easier to face if we have decided in advance how to respond. If you're easily angered or you're impatient, if there's a sin you're struggling with, um, be prepared, knowing that temptation could soon come again. As we are diligent in training our hearts, maybe that's something you start in the morning, your quiet time, you look at that sin, and shepherding them with the word of God, we'll find that we are responding more right often, rightly, by his grace, right? Well, a plan for biblical response to temptation might include the following items. Recognize and acknowledge that you are being tempted. Quickly ask God for his help to resist. Remove yourself immediately from the temptation if possible. Identify the unbiblical desire that would be served in yielding to the temptation. Quote, meditate on appropriate scripture. Remind yourself of God's presence, of his power and his promises to you. Reflect on the purpose of Christ's death. Mentally and verbally, make a commitment to do the right thing, to do the thing that would honor the Lord in the situation. Get busy with a mind-engaging, godly activity, right? Call a friend and ask for help, and repeat these over and over until that temptation is reduced or is gone. Change is usually a process rather than an event, so people often experience setbacks and they become discouraged, Um, yet this frequently takes them by surprise. The key is humbling yourself over and over again before the Lord in repentance. And when you get off your knees, you start anew in a desire for obedience. Believers are repenters. What do I do if I actually fall into sin? Well, I call it what it is, sin. I don't say that I'm annoyed. Call it what God says. I'm angry. I'm not frustrated. God says I'm impatient. Take full responsibility for your part in the sin. Confess it both to God and to anybody else you've hurt. Ask God for help and not giving into that temptation again. Remind yourself of what Christ has done and is doing for you. He will complete the work he has begun. Look at this chart again. This chart is so helpful. There's so many wonderful promises here. Evaluate correctly the changes that have occurred and the process progress that has been made and thank the Lord for his grace in that. Make restitution where necessary. Well, planning is important, but planning won't happen. Um, I'm sorry, but planning alone will accomplish nothing. The plan has to be effective. It has to be put into practice. Well, James 1.22 has a stern warning against looking into God's word without impacting our lives. James says we are to receive the word implanted and to prove ourselves to be doers of the word, right? Not merely hearers and delude ourselves. And so that means that shepherding is 24-7, 365 days a year, no holidays, no vacations, and no coasting. So what do we, how do we do that? Well, we know in a parent and child relationship that a strong relationship consists of more than just correction, right? It certainly does include that. But correction has a better chance of being received and making an impact in the relationship if it also has times of encouragement and fun and um, maybe there are times of shared sorrows, of sweet experiences together and teaching and training not only in what one ought not to do but also what one should do, right? And there are some great um, principles there for our relationship with our Father. We certainly need to be aware of what we're doing with our hearts when we sin but before and after, both before and after. But we lay a foundation for that heart shepherding in the face of sin and conflict 
when we're cultivating a closer relationship with Christ, right, in those sweet times alone with him, when we're intentional throughout our day to keep bringing our hearts back to the Lord. And we can do that by praying. We can worship through music. We can thank God, have a continual thankful heart, express our needs and our fears and doubts to him, pray for others and pray with others, listen to the word online or sermons. It's such a great feasting for our hearts. Memorize scripture, share scripture with others, either texting, um, obviously voice, cards, express your love for God and your trust in him. Remember the gospel, live obediently. Those are all an expression of love for God. The provocations of sin are endless, we said. Of course, temptations to complain, to be angry, to be judged or self-righteous, to be anxious, to worry, to be indifferent to sin, to not use self-control, to be self-serving, to make idols of the things that we want. Even good things can become idols. There are many things we desire that are good. A godly marriage, a believing husband, children who obey their parents in the Lord, or older children who walk with the Lord. But when I respond sinfully when I don't get those things, proves that I've made it an idol. But having soaked ourselves in the realities of the gospel, we're much better equipped to recognize a temptation for what it is and to turn away from it by reminding ourselves of truths such as, in Christ, I have freedom and power not to sin. I'm no longer sin slave. I am a slave to righteousness. The gospel informs me that I am the chief of sinners and the least of all saints, and it drives me to regard others with humility and not trust my first assessment of a situation. My heart deceives me. The gospel enables me to love, and love hopes all things. It thinks the best. I can listen, and I can better understand what's going on rather than just jumping to conclusions. I have stumbled a thousand times into anger or self-indulgence or lack of self-control or fear. Why? Well, maybe you've confessed it and you've prayed about it, you've memorized verses about it, and still, there you go again. What is this sin telling us? This is really exciting. Second Peter 1, if you'll turn there. Second Peter encourages the study of God's word, which then encourages God's people in holiness as they put these teachings into practice. Satan in the Garden of Eden questioned Adam and Eve, right? He said, did God really say? Well, Christians are to fight Satan's snares by going back to scripture and by regulating their lives toward the word of God, according to it. We want to focus on the lasting grace of Christ and the salvation which he brings. We can stand on the finished work of the cross. We've been saved by God, from God, and to God. Remember, because of this, we're no longer our own. He enables us to live gospel-transformed lives but we have to battle in this fight of sanctification. So 2 Peter, I'm going to read for a little bit. Um, (coughs) Peter begins the chapter by describing what God has done for the believer. Verse 1, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. He has given us faith by his own righteousness, right? In verse 2, he multiplies, I'm sorry, he multiplies grace and peace to us through the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ. And in verse 3, he's given us power. He's granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through his power, who has called us 
by his own glory and excellence. And he has granted us, in verse 4, his precious and magnificent promises. So by them we partake of the divine nature. That is, we become like Jesus. And we escape the corruption of the world. We escape sin. Because of all that God has given us, these blessings in verses 3 and 4, the believer cannot be indifferent or self-satisfied. Such an abundance of divine grace calls for total dedication. We're called to be diligent. That is making every effort, maximum effort. The Christian life is not to is not live to honor to the honor of God without effort. Even though God has poured his divine power into the believer, the Christian himself is required to make every disciplined effort alongside what God has done. Um, Philippians 2, just flip back a few pages. Philippians 2, hold your hand here though. Philippians 2, 12 through 13. I think this is our last flipping back and forth. 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and with trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And we're to add to our faith, to give lavishly and generously. The word never meant to equip sparingly, but to supply lavishly for noble performance. God has given us faith and all the graces necessary for godliness. We add to those by our diligent devotional devotion to personal righteousness. Our first protection against corrupting influences from within is a commitment to that godliness which God works in Christ has made possible for us. Peter calls us to make every effort to develop the qualities here that reflect God's nature. And they're in verses 5 through 7. Faith as a full commitment to Christian teaching, goodness, virtue, or moral excellence. Knowledge is an understanding drawn from God's revelation. Self-control is an ability to hold yourself in. Perseverance is a steadfastness in the face of opposition. Godliness as conduct that shows we are aware of God's presence. And brotherly kindness as a real affection for our fellow Christians, our fellow sisters in Christ and brothers Love as a real commitment to do good to others. Such qualities will keep us from being ineffective and unproductive in our knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we want to pursue those. Again, how do we respond to what God has done? What to do with these precious and magnificent promises? God has supplied us with faith, and so now in faith we diligently supply all kinds of godly qualities. And they're listed there, 5 through 7. However, verse 9 says that he who lacks these qualities, that means, let's see, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. That means he's not diligently supplying self-control or love, anything that's just listed in verses 5 through 7. It says that that person is blind or short-sighted. Why? Because he's forgotten his purification from former sins. So we ask ourselves, what does my sin tell me? What does my lack of self-control or my lack of love show? Well, it tells me that I've lost sight of what Christ has done for me on the cross. I'm short-sighted. All I think about is me and my circumstances and how this is affecting me right now. I'm forgetting that Jesus died for my sin, that I'm forgiven and I'm cleansed and I'm freed. I'm not sin slave anymore. 
I belong to Jesus, and he's given me everything I need for life and godliness through my knowledge of him. That is exciting. And so 2 Peter 1 shows us that one essential weapon against sin is to remember. I remember what Christ has done, who I am because of him, and how badly I need him. Apart from Christ, I can do no good thing. And so we pray, and we remind ourselves throughout the day, I've been cleansed. I'm not a slave to anger or fear or lack of self-control. Remembering what he has done on my behalf and the benefits that are now mine are, is essential. We begin this remembering in the morning as we have time with him, and we carry this throughout the day. We remind our hearts and we remind others when we have opportunity of a saving grace and mercy that is now ours to those who belong to Christ. Remembering perhaps when I'm sinned against by a friend or my husband or a co-worker, that either one, he or she has also been redeemed, and that sin that they're um, right now committing against me has been paid for by Christ. They too are no longer slaves to that sin. Or that he or she has not yet been saved. And I can recall the gospel, and I can remember that I am the chief of sinners and the least of all saints, and remember who I was before Christ saved me. And, And I'm humbled, unable to forgive, because Christ has forgiven me much. And if I'm holding that sin against one who has been redeemed by Christ, for this very sin, I'm not viewing him or her as Christ does at this moment. I have no right to hold this sin against him or her when Christ does not. However, I can think rightly and remember that they are no longer slaves to unrighteousness, as I am not. I can extend grace and mercy and forgiveness. So we have all. Um, so we have seen that shepherding our heart is constant and continual discipline. We've seen that it's confessing sin. It's cultivating a right view of God, relinquishing my rights, forgiving. Trusting God in his sovereign plan and will over my life, informing my mind of biblical truths. It means to faithfully and eagerly guard, lead, feed, and train our hearts to obey God's word, to dispel fear from our hearts by drawing near to God, to know God's character and love for us. And the list goes on. We are all on a journey of sanctification, right? If we have surrendered our life to Christ, we are on a journey of sanctification, the process of being sanctified. We're all at different places on this journey. Some have walked with the Lord for many, many years, and some have just begun. Together, though, we continue to walk with him and to grow in that walk. So next week, we're going to look at, particularly speaking, practically speaking, I'm sorry, what a quiet time might look like. like. And it will be different for each of us, and it's even going to look different for um, maybe in our day-to-day walks. We will look at many different tools God has provided for us in our time with him that would benefit us and would be more honoring to him. We look forward to being together, and we are so thankful for your faithfulness to be here, to be around God's word. It's a benefit to one another by our sharing. Um, It's a blessing that the Lord has given us. There is a quote at the end of your outline that I was going to read, but I think I'm not. I'm just going to let you read that this week. But I want to close this morning by preaching the gospel to us, preaching the gospel to our hearts from a gospel primer. My God is immense beyond imagination. He measured the entire universe with merely the span of his hands. He is unimaginably awesome in all of his perfections, 
absolutely righteous, holy, and just in all of his ways. He has also been unbelievably good and merciful to me as the creator and sustainer of my life. Every breath, every heartbeat, every function of every organ in my body is a gift from him. Every legitimate pleasure I experience is a gift from his loving hand to me. All that I am and all that I have I owe to him and his goodness. My life in every way is and will continue to be utterly dependent on him in whom I live and move and have my being. This wonderful God is the most supremely worthy object of admiration, honor, and delight in all of the universe. And he has created me with the intention that I might glorify him by finding my soul's delight in him and by living in joyful abundance to him in all of his ways. Yet I could not have failed this great God more miserably than I have. Instead of giving thanks to him and humbly submitting to his rule over my life, I have rebelled against him and have actually sought to exalt myself over him. Going my own way and living according to my own wisdom, I have broken countless times, either the letter or the spirit of every one of God's Ten Commandments. Thinking myself to be wise, I have shown myself to be a fool, and because of my arrogance, God has every right to damn me to the everlasting experience of his terrifying wrath in the lake of fire. So as for myself, apart from Christ, I am bound by the guilt of my sins and also bound by the power of sin, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. Apart from Christ, I am also utterly deserving of and destined for eternal punishment in the lake of fire, completely unable to save myself or even to make one iota of a contribution to my own salvation. However, what I could not do, God did, and in doing it, he did it all sending his own son into the world to die on the cross for my sins, thereby showing me unfathomable love. God loves me so much that he was willing to suffer the loss of his son, and even more amazingly, he was willing to allow his son to suffer the loss of him at the cross. Jesus loved me so much that he was willing to lay down his life for me. No one could ever love me more or better than Jesus. On the third day after Jesus' death, God raised him from the dead thereby announcing that his death was completely sufficient to atone for every sin that I have or will commit throughout my lifetime. God then exalted Christ on his own, to his own right hand, where Christ now reigns from on high, granting salvation and forgiveness to all who call on him by faith. Now when my time came and I placed my faith in Jesus, God instantly granted to me a great salvation. He forgave me of all my sins, past, present, and future. He made me his child adopting me into his family. He gave me the gift of the Holy Spirit who gives me God's power, who pours out God's love within my heart, and who tenderly communicates to my spirit that I am a child of God and an heir of eternal glory in heaven. In saving me, God freed me from slavery to any and all sins. I no longer have to sin, for sin's mastery over me has been broken. In saving me, God also justified me. And being justified through Christ, I have a peace with God that will endure forever. In justifying me, God declared me innocent for my sins and pronounced me righteous with the very righteousness of Jesus. God also allowed his future and present wrath against me to be completely propitiated by Jesus, who bore it upon the cross. Consequently, God now has only love, compassion, and deepest affection for me, and this love is without any admixture of wrath whatsoever. God always looks upon me and treats me with gracious favor, always working all things together for my ultimate and eternal good. 
God's grace abounds to me, even through trials. Because I am a justified one, he subjugates every trial and forces it to do good unto me. When I sin, God's grace abounds to me all the more, as he graciously maintains my justified status as described above. When I sin, God feels no wrath in his heart against me. His heart is filled with nothing but love for me, and he longs for me to repent and confess my sins to him so that he might show me the gracious and forgiving love that has been in his heart all along. God does not require my confession before he desires to forgive me. In his heart, he already has forgiven me. And when I come to him to confess my sins to him, he runs to me, as it were, and is repeatedly embracing and kissing me even before I get the words of confession out of my mouth. God does see my sin, and he is grieved by my sin. His grief comes partly from the fact that in my moments of sin, I am not receiving the fullness of his love for me. He even sends chastisement into my life, but he does so because he loves me, and he is for me. He disciplines me for my ultimate good. I don't deserve any of this, even on my best day, but this is my salvation, and herein I stand. Thank you, Jesus.